good to be with you all this morning as we continue our study of the book of Matthew. Now, I don't know if you've noticed, but if you read the news, sometimes a headline that you read is all bad news. Everyone who reads that headline will respond. That is awful news. So a child falls down a well or a disease is spreading. Everyone would say that's, that's just really bad news. On the flip side, sometimes a news headline that you read is all good news. Everyone who reads it would say, wow, that is awesome. That is great news. Like giant pandas are no longer close to extinction. Who would be unhappy about that? That's great news. They're such lovable animals. Or this one, deaf dachshund finds his forever home after being taught sign language. I have no idea how that works, but you'd have to be Hitler to not like that news. That's really good news. But most of the time, a headline is either good news or bad news, depending on your perspective, depending on your circumstances. So when Trump won the election, that was really good news to some people, really bad news to others. It totally depended on your perspective. A month ago, when I heard rumors that NSYNC was getting back together, that's Good news for some people, bad news for others. It depends on your opinion of 90s era boy bands. So our passage this morning works that same way. Is it good news or bad news? It will depend entirely on your perspective. So turn to Matthew chapter 22. We're going to look this morning at one of the most famous passages in the book of Matthew, the great commandment. So Matthew 22, we're into the final week of Jesus's life. He has entered into Jerusalem in in triumph. He has entered the temple, and now he is going toe-to-toe with the religious leaders. And so in this chapter, Matthew 22, they are attempting to trap Jesus in his words. They want to humiliate him. So they're asking him very pointed questions, trick questions, trying to get him to stumble over his words so they can turn the crowds against him. So their first question, it was about taxation. Should we pay taxes or not? It's a smart question to ask because they know if Jesus says, pay your taxes, the crowds will hate him. If he says, don't pay your taxes, the Romans will hate him. He loses either way. Uh, Jesus flips the tables on him though. And he gives an answer that is so wise and so balanced that the religious leaders are humiliated and everyone is just stunned by his wisdom. So then they ask a second question. It's about resurrection and the afterlife and marriage. And and they think it's going to trap Jesus, but he humiliates them again because he knows the Bible so much better than they do. And so now we're to the third and final attempt by the religious leaders to trap Jesus in his words. One more question. So look at verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered themselves together. One of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he, that is Jesus, said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Now, most of us have read this passage many times before. It's familiar to us, so familiar it has its own name. We've called this the great commandment for centuries in the church. It's actually the first part of our mission statement, Grace Bible Church. This is our 
primary passage. It's the first part of pretty much every church's mission statement because this is the great or greatest commandment of Jesus our King. So we've heard this command so often that it tends to just wash over us. We don't really think about it anymore. We hear a preacher preaching the great commandment and we just think, yeah, that's it. That's right. That's what's most important. Preach it. Amen. There we go. Because we've heard it so much. It feels like a beautiful, wonderful, easy passage to us. But it didn't to the original audience. Notice how they respond. In the, in the parallel passage, when this is recorded in the book of Mark, right after Jesus finishes saying this, it tells us after that, no one would venture to ask him any more questions. They aren't amening. They aren't excited. They aren't saying, wow, that's great news. No, they are, they are just simply overwhelmed. They are absolutely stunned into silence. They're so overwhelmed by what Jesus just said here that they won't dare to ask him anything else. And so this passage that to us feels like really good, beautiful news, to them it was really bad news. Let me explain that for a moment. Let's look at the great commandment as really, really bad news. Okay, so here's some background on on what was going on. This lawyer who asked Jesus this question, this was actually a very common question back in Jesus' day. Because you see, the Pharisees, religious leaders, had taken the Old Testament Mosaic law and they had listed out everything that it commanded and that gave them a list of 613 discrete commands. That's a really long list. No one can keep 613 commands in mind at all times. And so it was very natural to ask, okay, what's the most important? What do we need to focus on? And, and by asking what's the most important, what do we need to focus on? The goal was help us to simplify the law so that we can keep it. Boil it all down so there's, there's one or two things that we can focus on so we can actually do this thing called the law. And so each rabbi would offer his opinion about which command was the most important. And so the lawyer assumes, well, I'll throw this question, this common question out to Jesus because if I can get him to share his favorite, then at least half the crowd is going to disagree with him. At least half the crowd's not going to like him anymore because he didn't pick their favorite command. So he's setting up a trap here. Get Jesus to pick sides in a common debate and lots of people won't like him anymore. Unfortunately for the lawyer, Jesus turns the tables on him. Jesus flips it around and, and shocks the lawyer. Jesus easily gets out of this trap. So Jesus' answer to the lawyer, if you had to summarize it in one word, it would be, of course, the word love. Now, most people in our culture, they read a passage like this where Jesus talks about the, the most important thing above all else, above sexual immorality commands, above, above lying commands, above all, all other things. The most important thing is love. Our culture hears that and likes it. Because what does our culture love above all else? Love. We love love. We, we, we get warm and fuzzy when, when we in 21st century America hear this four-letter word, love. It sounds wonderful to us. So this is really good news, right? Wrong. Because you see, our culture does not understand what Jesus means by the word love. They, they don't get it. 
And so let me define this word for you. Let me unpack what the Bible means by the word love. In, in Greek, in this passage, it's the verb agapao, and it means to, to cherish or be devoted to someone or something. But, but what does it actually look like to, to be devoted to someone? Well, Jesus tells us in John 15, verse 13, he says, greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. So biblical love is defined by sacrifice. That's, that's the nature of what the Bible means by love. Not, not a feeling, not an emotion, not an experience, not even a relationship. It's about sacrifice. Love in the Bible is a choice to sacrifice self for the sake of the other. That's not going to be a, a pleasant experience. And that's the fundamental misunderstanding of our culture. When, when they hear love, they think of this pleasant experience that you get down in your gut when you enter into a new relationship with someone you have a crush on and it feels so good. No, love, as the Bible defines it, is often not pleasant because it's not a pleasant experience to die. And yet that's how love is defined. It is to die to self, to sacrifice self for the sake of the other. And so we are called to sacrifice self for the sake of the other, first towards God. We're to love God with that self-sacrificial love. We're to love him with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind. Now, in, in this quote, Jesus is actually taking us back to the book of Deuteronomy. He's quoting Deuteronomy 6.5. It's actually one of the most famous verses in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5 is a saying that the Jews called the Shema. And they would actually recite Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5 twice a day, every day. And they would carve it on the doorposts of their homes because it summarized the first four of the Ten Commandments. It was about our relationship or responsibilities towards God. So this was a very well-known passage. But what does it actually mean to love God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind? Well, those three words in both Hebrew and Greek, they aren't actually very separate. They overlap. They, they aren't meant to distinguish different parts of you. They just kind of look at, at you as a person in, in three different ways. And so when Jesus talks about your heart, in both Hebrew and Greek, that's the center of your being. And it's talking about your desires and your choices. To love God with your heart means that you desire to do what God wants you to do and choose to do what God wants you to do. To love God with your heart looks like this, John 14, 15. If you love me, says Jesus, you will keep my commandments. And so if we say we love God and yet choose to sin, then we are lying. In that moment that we're sinning, we're lying. You cannot love God and sin at the same time. To love God with your heart means that you choose to, to desire and do what God wants you to desire and do. How about to love God with your soul? Well, soul actually refers to your whole person, you. It's, it's like the old English when, it, when a ship would sink and we'd say a hundred souls were lost in that shipwreck. That's how the word is being used in Hebrew and Greek. So Jesus is saying, love God with your whole soul. Love God with your whole person, your, your body, everything about you. Be devoted to to God. Mind, that's your intelligence, your thoughts, your understanding. We're, 
We're to love God with everything we think about, everything that we contemplate is to be completely devoted to God. And so by naming these three words, love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, and mind, Jesus is not dividing us up or dividing up our love. What he is saying is love God with all that you are at all times. In everything that you feel, in everything that you desire, in everything that you think, in everything that you do, in everything that you say, you are to completely be devoted to God at all times. Sacrificially love him. That's a really high command. It's matched only by the second command. So not only are we to love the Lord our God sacrificially, but we're to love our neighbor sacrificially. Jesus puts it, you're to love your neighbor as yourself. That, again, is another quote from the Old Testament. It's from the book of Leviticus, chapter 19, verse 18. And this is actually the third time Jesus has quoted that verse from Leviticus in the book of Matthew. So you can tell this is, this is pretty important to Jesus. He really wanted us to get this command. This in the Old Testament, this particular command summarized the second half of the Ten Commandments. All of those commands about your responsibilities towards your neighbor. You're to love your neighbor as yourself. Now we hear that command, love your neighbor as yourself. And the first question we think to ask is, who's my neighbor? Because we want to limit the scope of the command. I can't love everyone out there like that. So who exactly must I love? Who is my neighbor? But Jesus has already answered that, particularly in the story of the Good Samaritan, where the question is, who is my neighbor? Well, Jesus says, well, look at the Samaritan and the Jewish man who has been robbed and left for dead. The the Samaritan and that man who's been left for dead, they don't have anything in common. They don't live next to each other. They don't work together. They don't live together. They're of a different race, of a different economic class. They're completely separate. In fact, in the ancient world, they were not allowed to be in the same room with each other. And yet Jesus says, who was the good neighbor? It was a Samaritan. The Samaritan had no connection with this man other than the fact that he saw someone in need. And so he reached out and helped him. And so what Jesus is telling us in that parable is your neighbor is absolutely anyone on earth you have the opportunity to help. Your neighbor is anyone, regardless of race, ethnicity, nationality, economic class, education level, gender, anyone, whether believer or unbeliever, who you can help, they are your neighbor. And you're called to love them like you love yourself. But what does Jesus mean when he says love them like you love yourself? How do you love yourself? Well, there may be some days when you don't really like yourself, kind of angry at yourself, you're down on yourself, you're frustrated with yourself. And yet even on those days when you're really down on yourself, you still love yourself. How do you know? Because you take care of yourself. You, You eat you clothe yourself, you you take shower, you you do at least the basics to care for yourself. You do that without even thinking about it. Why? Because that's human nature. We take care of ourselves. We don't even have to really think about that. When when you get hungry for lunch today, you're not going to have a conversation with yourself. Hey, self, what's up? How how are you doing down there? I I hear you grumbling. Do do we need to go get some lunch for you now? You're you're not going to do that. You're just going to go get lunch. You're going to do it immediately without thinking. Why? Because that's how we love ourselves. We take care of ourselves is the moment that we perceive a need. And Jesus is saying that's how we're to treat a neighbor. We we don't have a conversation about it. We just jump in and, and help that neighbor, whoever it is that we can help. Now, when you jump in to help someone in need, it will cost you 
money and time. What are you to think about that? Well, think about yourself again. When you feel hunger this afternoon, you're leaving church, you're heading out of here, you pick a restaurant, you stop and you eat, you are going to spend money and time to satisfy your need and you're not going to give it a second thought. You're not going to be angry about having to fill your belly. You're probably going to enjoy it. You're going to stop somewhere you want to eat and you're going to be happy about spending that time and money to satisfy your need. And Jesus is saying you should feel the same way about satisfying the need of your neighbor, whoever else is in need. You don't, give it, you don't think about the time. You don't think about the money. You just jump in and sacrifice to meet their needs. So Jesus' point And this command is to say that we are to immediately jump in and meet the needs of anyone whom we see is in need. And we're to do it without thought about the time or the money that it costs us. Paul puts it this way, Philippians chapter 2. He says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. We're to to look to others above ourselves, their needs and desires above our needs and desires. Now, I, I hope at this point, especially looking at Philippians 2, that you guys are beginning to see why I said that the great commandment is really, really bad news. Because not a single one of us has ever obeyed the great commandment on a single day of our lives. It would have been so much easier if Jesus would have just said, do not murder, that's the big one. I can keep that. Or do not steal, please, do not steal. Okay, I can do that. Instead, he presents this infinite command that I have never obeyed. I added it up the other day. I have been alive 1,400, no, 14,908 days. And I realized in those 14,908 days, I have never obeyed Jesus' command for even one second. I have never loved God with the complete extent of my being. And I have never loved another person as much as I love myself. Never. So this is incredibly bad news if this is what the law demands. This is actually, funny story, this is why I always get, or one of many reasons, I get uncomfortable at weddings. Weddings, okay, first of all, you have to dress up really nice, and I'm uncomfortable when you dress up really nice. And then second, it's really formal, and you're not supposed to do anything weird, and so I'm always nervous that something weird is going to happen. But there's also this really uncomfortable moment in every wedding when they read 1 Corinthians 13. And probably every time they read it, you think it's really beautiful and wonderful. Let me read it to you again. And I want you to hear it as if you actually had to live this way every day. Love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. It is not provoked. It does not take into account a wrong suffered. It does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. It bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things. It endures all things. And so people read that and they feel like it's warm and fuzzy and beautiful. And I do not. I read that and it's terrifying to me. It's crushing to me because I have not loved Julie that way one day of our marriage. 
I never love my kids that way. I never love anyone that way. Because love as it's revealed by God is an infinitely high standard that I can never live up to. If this is what it takes to please God and keep the law, then we are doomed. That is the bad news of the great commandment. The law requires the absolute impossible of us. That's why we so desperately need a savior. Now you know where the book of Matthew is headed. This is Jesus' last week on earth. You know what's about to happen. He's about to be arrested and tried and beaten and crucified and then rise from the dead. He's about to go to the cross where he will die in our place for all of our sins, including our daily failure to obey the great commandment. So that's the really good news that we call the gospel. So the gospel says that God demands perfect love. He demands that you perfectly love him and everyone else on earth completely, selflessly at all times. All of us fail that. Every human has failed the great commandment with the exception of one man, Jesus. But Jesus loves us so much that he chose to take that perfect obedience of love off of himself and place it on you and in exchange take all of your sin, including your moment by moment failure to love. He took all of your sin off of you and put it on himself. That is the exchange of the cross. Jesus gave you his obedience and took away your sin. Here's how it's put in 1 Peter 3. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's the great news of how Christianity works. God wants you to spend eternity in heaven with him. How does he get you there? Not by lowering the standards, but by taking on flesh and living the perfect life you have failed to live and then offering that perfection to you as a free gift and in exchange taking away your sin and dying for it as a free gift. And now Jesus offers you that eternal life as a free gift. But he won't force it on you. It's up to you. You have to decide. When this life ends and you stand before God, will you stand on your merits? Will you say to God, I I should get in because of all that I've done. Look how I've loved. Look at how selfless I've been. Look at how much I've given. If you stand on your merits, it's not going to work out well. Because there is only one standard acceptable at the gates of heaven and it's perfection. So instead of standing on your merit, you can instead choose to stand on Jesus's merits. And then you say to God, I've fallen completely short. I have not obeyed your law one second of one minute of one hour of one day of my entire life. But I know your son Jesus and he did satisfy all your demands and I stand here on his merit. I'm here because he lived for me and he died for me and he rose for me and I'm in him. That's the good news of the gospel. All you have to do is just say, yes, God, I I want that exchange to count for me. 
So the great commandment is phenomenally bad news designed to lead us to the gospel. But once we have accepted the gospel, once we have received eternal life as a gift, then the great commandment actually transforms and it becomes good news for us. And so let me explain that to you. This, this command is good news for us. Here's, here's why I say that. Remember, the Pharisees had listed everything that the Old Testament law demanded. And it was a list 613 items long. How overwhelming is that? Can you imagine waking up and on your bedside table next to you, the first thing that you see is a list, 613 items long. That's what you got to do today. Man, that would be crushing to us. And so Jesus gives us this amazing gift. He says, all of those commands that have been overwhelming you, let me boil them all down. Let me simplify life for you as a believer. This isn't how you are in heaven. Jesus did that. But now as a believer, here's what God wants of you. Love. That's it. Love God, love others. Don't worry about 613 things. Just love God and love others. Jesus simplifies life for us. He focuses it so that we can keep our eyes on what's most important. Paul puts it this way in Romans 13. He's doing the same thing Jesus did. For this, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not covet all laws from the Old Testament. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. When you choose this sacrificial love towards God and towards others, you are fulfilling all of the law. You don't have to worry about a long checklist. Just love and you are pleasing God. Sacrificial love towards God and others is what God wants of us. So it's kind of like the student who hasn't yet declared a major. And so every time someone asks them, hey, what's your major? They feel stress because they haven't they haven't focused it yet. They haven't decided on what their major is. And so they have all the classes that A&M offers as an, as an option. There are too many options. They don't know where to focus. That's overwhelming. There's peace that comes the moment you declare your major. You, you now know what to focus on. You wake up in the morning and you know, this is the goal. You wake up in the morning and you know, I got to take these classes and I will graduate and be a success at A&M. And so Jesus is doing that. He's helping you to declare your major, to know what to focus on in life. Don't worry about 613 things, just these two. Love God, love others selflessly, and you will please God. Now, that is really good news. It doesn't solve the problem that none of us can love the way that God requires. So, that's okay, because there's really good news coming. But it's not come yet in the book of Matthew. Jesus hasn't gone to the cross yet. He's not died yet for our sins and risen from the dead to make really good news possible in the form of the Holy Spirit. But we live after the cross and so we have this amazing good news that Jesus' audience didn't have yet. Because Jesus has died for our sins and risen from the dead, we have a new helper in our lives. So if if you don't know this, I'd love to introduce you to this new power source that you have in your life if you're a believer. Jesus tells us in, in John 14, he says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth. You know him because he abides with you and will be in you. 
Jesus is promising that when he ascended to heaven, he would send the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity, to live in us forever, to be with us. That promise was fulfilled on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. And it's fulfilled again every time a person trusts in Jesus. The Holy Spirit comes to live inside of you. And so if you're a believer, you're not alone in this life. As you seek to obey the commands of God, love God, love others, God doesn't leave you to your own resources, to your own strength. Instead, God comes to live inside of you. The Spirit dwells in you. And here's the great news about the Spirit in you. Paul says in Galatians 5, I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. If you walk by the Spirit in you. Now, what what does it mean to walk by the Spirit? It means that you rely on the Spirit. You say, Holy Spirit, I need your help to do what God has called me to do because I can't on my own. And so please fill me and lead me. I'll go. I'll follow you wherever you, wherever you lead me. Walk by the Spirit. It should, picture, it should cause you to picture um, you're walking across the street with an infant, with a, with a little kid, maybe a toddler. We'll say a toddler. So, so this toddler can try to cross the street on his own. That never works out well. Or the toddler can hold up his hand to you. And let you lead the toddler safely across the street. That's what it means to walk by the spirit. You hold up your hand. You're admitting, I don't know my way across the street. I'm not going to make the other side safe. So you hold up your hand. Spirit, take my hand. Lead me. Empower me. Take me across the street. I will follow where you lead. So if you will let the spirit lead you, if you'll walk by the spirit, what will the result be? Well, later in the passage, Paul says, the fruit of the spirit is love. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. The fruit of the Spirit. What's the fruit of the Spirit? It's a supernatural traits. The Holy Spirit grows in your life. Fruit of the Spirit means you didn't make it. It is not possible for you to love with God-like love. You will never do that on your own. But the Spirit can do that inside of you. He can grow within you God's love and God's patience and God's peace and God's joy, but you must depend on him. So let's get practical. Let's talk about how we actually walk by the Spirit so that we can grow in love for God and for others. Let me walk you through a few steps as the men go back to prepare communion for us. So practically speaking, how do I grow in love through the power of the Spirit for God and for others? Well, the simple answer is you practice the spiritual disciplines. This is where the spiritual disciplines fit in our lives. The spiritual disciplines don't earn us brownie points with God. They don't make us holy. What the spiritual disciplines do, they're habits in your life that make you available to the Spirit's transformative work. As you practice these habits daily, they allow the Spirit to convict you and teach you and train you and transform you to make you more and more like Jesus, to grow you in love and joy and peace and patience and all of that good stuff. So there's actually lots of spiritual disciplines. I can't cover all of them in one sermon, but I will point out three. Three habits that if they're in your life, The Spirit will use them to help you to grow in the love that God requires. And so the first is read the Word. 
You read the word. In the book of Peter, 1 Peter, it says, Like newborn infants long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. This, this book is not like other books. The spirit works through this book because it is God's actual words. And so as you read this book, as you memorize this book, as you study this book, the spirit will use this book to feed you. It's like eating. You should spend time here regularly, just like you spend time feeding your body regularly. This is how you feed your soul. The Spirit will use your time in this book to grow your love. So this needs to be one of your habits. You're reading, memorizing, studying the Word. Second habit, give. It's interesting, Jesus makes a promise to us. Matthew 6, 21, he says, For where your treasure is, your money, your wealth, there your heart will be also. Now, in one sense, that's just a statement of fact. Where you give your money, your heart will follow. You will end up loving whatever it is that you spend your treasure on. But it's not just a fact, it's also a promise. Do you want to love the right things? There's a way to do that. Give your money to the right things. When you give your money to God, it will grow your love for God. When you give your money to other people, especially people in need, it will grow your love for people in need. So that's an amazing promise. You can actually shape the desires and affections of your heart. It's as simple as pulling out your wallet. Give to the kingdom of God, give to people in need, and it will grow within you an affection for those things, a love for those things. Third habit. To make part of your life serve. As you serve God and serve others, it will grow your love. Now, there's lots of opportunities to serve. You can do it here at Grace. You can do it in the community. One that I want to just prepare you for, we're going to talk a lot more about it in the coming weeks. This summer, we're going to do something new at Grace. We're really excited about it. It's called Grace for the City. It's June 3rd through 10th. So in years past, we've done backyard Bible clubs where we focused on kids. This year, we want to do something even bigger, where we focus on serving our whole community. So if you've done backyard Bible clubs in the past and you really want to do it again, we'll resource you with some of the materials we've used in past years. But as a church, we're going to focus on even broader things. We want to empower you and help you to get involved in serving this city for Jesus so that you will love this city for Jesus. So we're going to have a few different things. We're going to equip you and help you to, to perhaps host a neighborhood block party where you invite your whole neighborhood out and you serve them food and you love on them and you begin to build relationships that can lead to the gospel. Uh, Second, we're going to have resources available to connect you with our community partnerships. So charities in this community that serve those in need, those in poverty, those who have circumstances in their lives where they're in desperate need, we're going to help you to directly serve those charitable organizations. And then third, we're going to connect you with some of the school districts in this area and have work projects where you actually go out and work in schools to demonstrate the love of Christ to this community. So we've got lots of details coming in the weeks ahead, ahead, how you can sign up for block parties, for, for charities, and for working in schools this summer, June 3rd through 10th. But if you wouldn't mind writing those dates down, June 3rd through 10th, Grace for the City, all, th- all four campuses, all of us together are going to serve this city as a tangible expression of the love of Jesus Christ for this town we live in. So 
These three habits, read the word, give, and serve. As you do these, they're not magical. They won't make you holy. They won't make you loving, but they will make you available to the Holy Spirit who lives inside of you, who will grow within you the kind of love that God desires. Now, this morning, we have the privilege of sharing in communion together, which is an excellent way to to respond to the love of God. Because remember how the gospel works. God demands perfect love. You fail. So do I. And so Jesus came to satisfy the requirements of perfect love and give that obedience to you as a free gift. And in exchange for that perfect obedience he offers you, he takes from you all of your sin, all of your failures, all of your guilt, all of your shame. And he took it and placed it on his shoulders and died for you on the cross to pay the penalty so all those things could be wiped away. That's the good news of the gospel. And so as the men come forward, what I'd like you to do is, as communion elements are passed, I would like you to think and reflect on the great exchange that happened on the cross. I want you to give thanks that Jesus worked this incredible exchange where he took your sin and gave you his obedience so that you could have eternal life as a free gift. Paul says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Lord Jesus, we praise you and thank you for the great exchange that happened at the cross. We thank you that you came to earth, you took on flesh, you left the beauty and bliss of heaven to to live among us on this sin-cursed planet, to live amongst all the suffering and death here, and, and in your time on this earth, you perfectly loved, you alone satisfied the law, you loved God with everything in you. You loved others as yourself, as better than yourself. You alone perfectly obeyed. We praise you, Lord Jesus, that you took that perfect obedience and placed it on us. And that in exchange, you took off of us all of our sin and shame and guilt, and you placed it on yourself and died in our place. We praise you and thank you for that. We thank you that you rose from the dead to earn eternal life for us and to offer it to us as a gift. We thank you that it's not something that we earn, that instead it's something that you have earned and give to us for free. We praise you for that. We pray that because you so loved us that now we would respond through the power of your spirit and love you and and love others. We pray that you would, through your spirit, grow our love, that you would help us to become the kinds of people who are completely devoted to you, Lord God, and, and sacrificially devoted to our neighbors, to others in this town, Lord. I pray that you would help us to love deeply and selflessly just like Jesus did. We praise you and thank you for him. In his name we pray, amen. God bless you guys. Have a great week.